I'm Trisha, and welcome to Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go, because I think I hear the recess bell. Having the courage to be willing to change your life and to stand up to people who tell you not to, who tell you to complete what you started. No, you can actually change tracks because it's your life and you have the, the power to do that. My guest today is Karen Ryle. Karen is the author of Winter Music, a novel set in Philadelphia, and numerous works of fiction and creative nonfiction. Her writing has appeared in literary journals such as The Southern Review, American Writing, Creative Nonfiction, Other Voices, Superstition Review, Tishman Review, and has been shortlisted among the best American short stories. Karen has published articles and essays in the San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and others. She is the founding and chief editor of Cleaver, an online literary magazine and book review, and the faculty director of Cleaver Workshops. Karen lives in Philadelphia and teaches fiction and creative nonfiction at the University of Pennsylvania. She holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania, an MFA from Bennington College, and a certificate in satire from the Second City. She is also the mom of four adult daughters with more interesting careers than her own, an aerialist, a glass artist, a violist, and a playwright. I grew up in the northwest section of Philadelphia, which is a very sort of liberal and um, somewhat artsy area. And my parents were both, or are both artists. Um, They met in college and they both have BFA degrees in painting and history of art. My dad came to that through the GI Bill. He originally started at Carnegie Mellon when it was called Carnegie Tech. And he actually overlapped a little with Andy Warhol, although they did not know each other. Uh, What he studied was type design. The design of typography is sort of artsy, but also technical. He actually left Carnegie Tech and dropped out and went to New York, where he became the principal type buyer for Remington Rand, which is a very big corporation, at age 19, which is very, I mean, that sounds strange in today's world of desktop publishing and fonts, but back then that was a big deal. But of course he was then drafted and then went to the Korean War where he was an aerial cartographer, which is military intelligence, but his half of the alphabet got to go to Western Europe during the Korean War, luckily for me, Um, (laughs) because I exist now, I guess. (laughs) When he came back, he went to the University of Pennsylvania um, and studied fine arts, which is where he met my mother. You know, we were raised in a way that was very arts friendly. And when I was a little girl, my mom worked in PR and she did public relations for the Women's Political Caucus, the League of Women Voters, and other similar causes like that. And my dad had his own advertising agency and it was operated out of their house. One of my neighbors, Natalie Hinderas, was a concert pianist, African-American concert pianist who had had a major career that was sidelined really because of racism 
she and my mom became fast friends because they were we lived a few houses from them. My mom, just because she's a very kind of flexible and intuitive person, said to Natalie, well, I can help you out. So she started doing public relations for Natalie. Just to collapse the story really quickly, over the next few years, she'd become Natalie's manager, and Natalie was playing with the major orchestras throughout the country as a soloist. Because my mom, not being part of the very like storied and difficult to break into world of classical musician, had no preconceived notions about how hard it would be, and she just did it. Over time, through creating more connections, my mom pivoted and became an artist manager, which she did out of our house in Mount Airy. She also had four children. I was the oldest. In the very sort of liberal way that we were raised as children, which is the way many people of my generation were raised, my parents didn't hypermanage us at all. So I spent a lot of time doing things like climbing down to the bottom of the train tracks and putting coins on the tracks and climbing back up. And after the train passed by, we would collect all the flattened coins and sell them to our friends. So, you know, if my parents knew that, of course, they would have told us, no, that's dangerous, don't do that. But we weren't hyper-managed the way kids are more nowadays, which is good. And my parents also always really valued the arts, including music, but other arts as well. Obviously, fine arts all over the spectrum. So one of my sisters studied ballet really seriously. We all studied music, but my parents didn't really manage that. We took ourselves to the lessons by ourselves as soon as we could. But when my mom would drive us, you know, she wouldn't attend the lessons. And as a result, I never practiced. And I don't think I have particularly much musical talent. You know, I think my talents are in the literary area, but I found music lessons to be among the most stressful thing in my life. I still remember being nine years old and I studied at Settlement Music School with a really excellent teacher, but I never practiced. So I would sit outside the lesson feeling incredible, horrible anxiety, knowing that I would go in there and disappoint my wonderful teacher yet again. And I could see him like just sort of looking at me like, oh no, here she comes. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of burned through several teachers. My parents would just find a new teacher for whatever reason, probably because I was being fired, but I didn't know it. But I once had this Viennese teacher who I was physically terrified of, even though she was about four foot eight and I was about four foot eight. But you know, I was just no good at music. So, you know, I studied flute for a while. I went to music camp, but as someone who never practiced, it's kind of amazing that I could even get as far as I did, which is probably similar to my siblings in music, but we all are musically literate. We can read music. I grew up surrounded by musicians, and my parents always referred to them as the artists with reverence. Sometimes they would actually even live with us or stay with us for long periods of time. So I was always fascinated with these people not wanting to hone in on their career spectrum at all. Because I also was always very aware of how difficult the life of a musician is. It's always been extremely clear to me because I saw it from this perspective of the financial difficulties that musicians go through and the extreme difficulty that it is to just keep a life like that going, even from the management perspective. My parents also, a large part of their roster was always African-American musicians and in a time before the internet, it became clear to us after a while when my mom started going to conferences that people were astonished to see that she was a five foot tall, red haired white woman because they assumed she was black. They couldn't tell because there was no internet. People's pictures weren't available. That was an interesting 
fact of my life that was just, you know, always just sort of folded into everything. When I was little and I told my mom I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, she said, well, what do you like to do? And I told her I liked to read. And she said, well, you could be a writer or an editor. So then I just sort of never really questioned that path and I just stayed on it. Of course, it's a much looser path. Like in music, you really need to start studying and working hard when you're a little kid. As a little kid writer, you know, you can do that, but there's no tradition of pedagogy for writing, and there shouldn't be. It's just a different thing. My sister that was in ballet had to go to lessons seven days a week, but I didn't actually have any tutors except for the books that I read. So that's how I sort of came up out of it. And then I went to college, and without questioning, really, I just majored in English without really thinking about it too much because I liked it. Now, looking back over my history, I'm thinking, well, maybe I should have majored in another subject because it would have been nice to expand my knowledge. But I went to college at a time when the distributional requirements were a little loose, so I could take all kinds of crazy courses. And I did, you know, psychology and color theory and, and medieval, a lot of medieval courses. I studied early Irish as a language, all that stuff. And in fact, for grad school, I was accepted to Oxford and Cambridge to study Celtic studies. But it was going to be too expensive. Um, there was no subsidy for foreign students at that time. And I just didn't want to go into debt. So I ended up not doing that. Instead, I became a writer. And I sort of talked my way into adjunct teaching in creative writing departments when I was in my early 20s. And I've been doing that ever since. It's interesting. It's probably not an intentional parallel, but your mother had four children and you have four children. Having had the experience that you had as the child of artists and having the benefit of an artistic childhood, if I'm understanding correctly, your kids also all at some point or another had music lessons. Music was part of their lives. Some of them went into it more seriously. It's really struck me that you said the music lessons were so stressful for you. Oh, Um, terrible. Yeah. So how did your kids come to also have music in their lives? Did you just appreciate your own musical literacy or how did that happen? It was sort of a happy accident. I mean, when I was in my, I guess, late teens, early 20s, I got really into road running and I, you know, I used to run marathons and that was my extreme discipline. At one point I was running 70 miles a week. I don't recommend that because it caused a lot of orthopedic problems. But, um, and my husband, also one of four children, also a kind of liberal background. His mother also trained in arts. You know, we always thought we would have four kids. I don't know why. We, you know, a lot of stuff you just make decisions without really thinking about it, and then they have a huge impact on your life. But I always thought that me and my kids would be doing sports. I mean, we lived in Denver when my oldest daughter was born, and we did a lot of skiing. Even with a newborn, um, we would put her in the nursery at the ski place. But um, as it turned out, none of my kids were interested in sports and it all happened by accident. My oldest daughter, when she was five, she started begging me for violin lessons out of the blue. I never thought that I would ever introduce my children to music. I saw how hard the life of a musician is and it was, you know, maybe just as a thrill at some point, but I didn't really think it was something I'd want to do. But she was so persistent that I, as a good researcher, began calling people up and asking them what their opinion was. And because I know so many high-level classical musicians, I got this message over and over. And the message was, don't go to a Suzuki school because no true artist has ever come from a Suzuki tradition, which is actually completely false. But that was the conventional wisdom. This was in the 90s. So, you know, my oldest daughter was born in 1986. So I guess, you know, that that's what people were saying then. And then people would always 
point to Josh through a bell, but they would say, oh, but he's an exception. But nobody has, you know, ever come from this tradition. So immediately I went to a Suzuki school because I did a lot of uh, research on Suzuki method and I thought, well, this will be fine. They can learn to speak the language of music and they can learn music, but I won't have to worry about them trying to go into music professionally uh, because I'm not going to be one of those parents. Because I did see that when I was growing up, even though it didn't happen in my house. I just didn't want that to force my children into anything. But what happened was really interesting to me. Uh, several things happened. One was a complete collision between Suzuki pedagogy and Montessori pedagogy, which is my kids happened to be going to a Montessori schools at that time. And uh, especially with my oldest daughter, who has a very creative and independent mind, I saw that there was a, a terrible collision. Like I would take her to these lessons, which were held in this house where the Suzuki school rented. And she would go into the room, which was the teacher studio for the day. And there would be all kinds of interesting knickknacks sitting around like, you know, little angels playing the violin or something like that and paintings on the wall, all music centered. And my daughter who went to a school in the morning where every object was intentionally laid out for children's discovery and that was what they were told to do. It was their job to make choices about what to do and the choices were all sort of pre-planned by the teacher because it was a laboratory Montessori school. And then in the afternoon I would take her to the Suzuki school and she would start asking questions about the little knickknacks and the teacher would call me up at night and say, I think your daughter has ADHD because she won't focus on my lesson. And I thought, wow, this is a real <laughs> problem. So we had that problem. And I started to realize from the group lessons that the kids who seemed to really flourish were the ones who would just sort of accept instruction without questioning. So I saw that going on. But I continued because I realized that it was something that I missed in my own life as a child, which is that the regular practice um, and I'm talking about 10, 15 minutes twice a day, that was one-on-one -on -one between me and the child, um, and also my own realization that my kids were not really extrinsically motivated, like they didn't want to practice for a treat. You know, sometimes we would have a sticker chart and the pleasure would be filling up the chart, but they would never really seem to want the goal of the treat. I came up with little um, adaptations, like I made these little cardboard circular coins in which I would put the name of each scale. So they would reach into the pencil case and pull it out and the pleasure would be like, we'll practice the scale in that order. These little things ended up being a real part of our household culture. My second daughter was two, she wanted a violin. So we had to get her one. And she began playing very, very early. And she was very natural with it, although being a two-year-old, she would sometimes have a tantrum and toss it across the room. <laughs> it's hard on the violin. And then the same thing with each child. They, they started pretty early. It became a lot of work for me because as they began to progress, it wasn't a 10-minute practice. It was longer. They had all this repertoire. When they were still in Suzuki, you're supposed to practice the whole book every day. You know, So that became a lot for me. I also became very adept at playing the piano backwards. I would sit facing them, but with my hand reaching backwards, and I could play along when they were little or with the scale just to make sure that they could match the pitch. This is before we started worrying about how pitch on piano is different from string instruments. But, you know, so I had this whole thing going. Small amounts, incremental amounts of deliberate practice really did yield huge results for them. And each of my children are very different. They say that, like, when you have one child, you believe in the ability to nurture the child and then you have your results. But when you have two children, you start to realize that, no, each person is really different. So my two middle children 
ended up being very, very musical, but in very different ways. And my third daughter, who's the one who did go into music professionally, she just has this, from the time she was a tiny child, this great ability to sort of hyper-focus very intensely and also to take instruction very quickly and pivot in that way. So she, of course, was very successful. My second daughter, her slightly older sister, the two of them played together a lot when they were little children and all the way through high school, including in several pretty successful quartets that were on From the Top a lot. And, you know, they played in Carnegie Hall as part of From the Top's TV show. They played in like the Kennedy Center, all that stuff in quartets at one point with another sibling set. But I think that's because they had this like history together for a long time. But the older sister has a different kind of brain and she she has very strong sense of synesthesia, which we later found out it's really some a thing. So reading music was always hard for her because she would see all these interfering colors and such. So that it turned out that that going into music wasn't quite her thing, but she did go into the arts as all of our children did. And they've all said to me repeatedly that they are so grateful for those early years in Suzuki and the time that they spent learning a lesson that small amounts of rigorous but also forgiving practice just creates a sort of a vast foundation that you can translate into any part of your life. So not being a professional musician doesn't really mean anything. The goal is to create a tradition in your life of practice. And actually for me, doing that practice with them is the first time I had that in my life because I grew up in a very sort of you did things out of sort of motivation and obligation, but there could be long, dry periods in which you really didn't do it at all. So I kind of learned as a young adult from them and from seeing this happen, and just because I felt the obligation to work with them every day, that in my own life, that it's also a thing that I can put into practice, which is a really great lesson because I think that people of my generation didn't really have those lessons, except for the rare people who did become musicians. You know, just the idea that you do something for a small amount of time every day and it becomes practice that informs your entire life, especially your discipline. And then I, as a pedagogue of creative writing, in the early 2000s, I began to transfer what I was learning from working with my kids to working with my students. So I changed my entire way of teaching. And I think it's extremely effective for my students because when I was originally teaching creative writing, I would do what my own teachers had done in college, which is basically the old Iowa school method where, you know, you might have a workshop schedule where people will present a story maybe once or twice a semester, and that's it. So, you know, theoretically, you're working in the background the whole time writing your story, but more likely you're just staying up all night the night before, which is fine, but it's not much of a practice. And there was no tradition of like daily writing or weekly writing. And that worked fine for my students at University of Pennsylvania where I teach because they're highly motivated and they get their work done. But I began to realize, and also based on teaching I'd done at other universities where the students may not have been quite as highly motivated, that I was not doing them any favors by not giving them more frequent assignments. So I kind of revamped everything I was doing and began to devise teaching methods that were more prompt-based and technique-based and involved them doing writing at least twice a week, every week. It's a lot more work for the teacher. Everyone writes a little bit shorter, but even in my advanced classes where students are writing stories as long as, you know, 10,000 words if they want to or 20,000 words, they're also doing prompt-based writing every single week. And that 
actually is really great for them. I don't think I've ever had a student complain about it, even though, I mean, they complain about it because it's a lot of work, but in the end, they all say, wow, I've really improved, because how could you not? There are not a lot of overlaps between pedagogy for writing and pedagogy for music, but I think that's one of them that really, really helps. Focusing on technique sometimes in writing helps a lot, and just having the enforced deadline of doing it. There's also transference in the other direction, because sometimes musicians get this very strong message that they have to work every day. And if they don't work every day, then it's a disaster. They're going to lose their skills. They're going to lose They're going to lose ground to all those other people who they're competing with. And the truth is that taking a break can be good. And writers actually all know this. Like, you know, the whole write every day or you'll never write again is just completely nonsense. Every writer takes breaks. And I think that it's also true that musicians kind of need that refresh. It's something that I've seen in my own life. You know, my daughter never took a break in practicing and, and studying until when she was like a sophomore or junior. I forget what year the summer at Juilliard. She went to London with the orchestra. So basically she had a free round trip ticket to Europe and she and a friend who had studied music but had gone to the college for a different reason decided that they would take three weeks and just tour Europe for fun. So she found a place to leave her violin which was actually with a luthier shop in London and they went on a three-week tour around Europe. It was the first time she'd done anything like that ever because she started playing violin when she was two. It was great. And when she got back, she could still play, you know, and that was an amazing discovery. Because before she went, there was this long discussion of, do I drag my violin all over? And how do I do that even? You know, some of those little airlines won't even let you carry an instrument on. So, you know, it was the right decision just to leave it for a few weeks. And it was fine. And that's a, an amazing discovery to make. And actually, she was probably a better player coming back after a break. So both as a writer myself and as a teacher, for certain, I have this wonderful second vocation, which is like teaching writing to people. Having this chance occurrence of my oldest daughter, I think she might, must have seen a child playing violin on Sesame Street or something. Maybe it was that Itzhak Perlman skit that we see sometimes on Sesame Street referred to that was done like 40 years ago and it just gets recycled. But just the fact that she was begging me persistently to take lessons, it really changed our entire lives and their lives. Because I sometimes think, well, they probably would have grown up just fine and all gone on to find careers, but it would have been different. They wouldn't have had this incredible work ethic. I would say the other very mean thing, it's taught me, or maybe the teaching is sort of mutually informing, is that because I had a student at Penn who had never been to college until she went to the University of Pennsylvania at age 17, and I was teaching nonfiction, and she was writing about her life. I learned about homeschooling, which is something I had never thought about, except to think that if only people on the real fringes would do something like that. Because I, you know, I went to school, I kind of liked school, like the idea of school. But my kids, two of them, were kind of struggling in two different situations, having to do with their schools. And I allowed my oldest daughter to talk me into letting her take charge of her own education when she was 11. So we started doing this radical unschooling, which meant that she basically, for the most part, figured out what to do. I, I have to say, I did get her a math tutor. And when she was a young teenager, she started taking real college courses as a non-matriculated student at University of Pennsylvania and also our local community college. And she went to Swarthmore when she was 17. Having that sort of realization that I could be completely flexible and we could just figure out different things to do with their lives was very useful to me too. And it made me become, I think, 
more confident in brainstorming ideas I've had for starting things, which is how I started a magazine, and it's turning out great, and it scaled up really quickly because I, I've had this sort of idea that you can actually change your life very quickly and respond to things that you think may be problematic in a way that's positive. Your first novel is called Winter Music. It's about a child prodigy musician, and music seems to often play a role in your writing. Yeah, it's session. <laughs> I think that every writer, actually I think every person has their hot spots of interest, and sometimes it can almost be a futile thing to figure out where they come from, but sometimes it's kind of obvious. So for some reason, I'm very interested in musicians. People have sometimes approached me and said, we review this concert, and I can say, you know, no, I can't because I, I'm not qualified to do that. For one thing, I don't have a degree in music, but I'm well more musically literate than the average person for certain, but I can do a feature article about the musician. For obvious reasons, I think it had to do with my childhood and really interested in musicians. I'm very interested in the lives of musicians. I'm interested in their struggles and I'm interested in pretty much everything about them. It, it's an area of fascination. And the fact that I wrote a book about a child prodigy musician and then ended up having children and one of whom became a musician, walking through a lot of the steps that I just sort of made up when I was younger before I had kids is kind of weird, but it's not that weird. The interesting thing is that I resisted it. I thought my kids were going to be like, you know, running beside me in marathons or skiing. I never took my kids skiing in my whole life. Well, because it turned out to be really expensive, but, you know, and I wasn't going to take four kids back to the Rocky Mountains to go skiing, but also our value system sort of shifted. We spent so much of my family's capital in terms of time and financial resources just on the classical music journey. And why did we do that? It just seems like one of our value points. I mean, I could have sent my children for the same amount that we spent on classical music. I probably could have sent them to nice private schools. But instead, we didn't really do that. We focused on this one area of arts education. I mean, they did other things. They did gymnastics and this and that other things, but at a much less of investment of, of all of our sort of family's time and, and energy and money. I don't know why. It just seems like we followed through. For me, it's a hot spot, and it's just something I'm fascinated with. You know, some writers actually don't seem to have that, and they're able to sort of travel through different areas of interest. But I think most people have certain interests that are just, like, always fascinating to them, and it's, it's one of my fascinations. Can you talk a little bit about what you think some of the pros and cons are of specifically a conservatory experience? I'm familiar with the student end of it, the student experience of it. Um, I personally have never even really talked to my mom about it. So I'm really interested to know as a parent, I mean, it's such a commitment as you've already outlined. None of us would be able to do what we do without parents like you. But I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the pros and cons? Um, you've talked a little bit about some of the pros of deliberate practice, but specifically about the conservatory experience. I grew up with the intense realization that Juilliard pre-college was a very difficult and painful environment because I had heard the horror stories. Of course, this was the pre-college of the 60s and 70s that I was hearing, and it's not something that ever popped into my mind, even when my children were little because the reputation is strong. And only one of my children went to that pre-college. There's some pretty good pre-colleges in Philadelphia. There's Salmon Music School, which is, I think, the oldest community music school in the country, and it's certainly the largest, and it's actually precedes Curtis, Curtis Institute 
was originally the conservatory division of settlement. That's where that came from. So my kids went to settlement and they did a lot. And actually, my one daughter that went to pre-college at Juilliard remained in the settlement program the entire time. Their advanced study program is terrific. Um, and then Temple Music Prep, all my kids went there. And that's also a really good program. So we had those. The reason my daughter ended up at Juilliard pre-college is that she had a teacher that she really loved that someone had recommended at Catherine Cho, who you probably know. And my daughter just really wanted to study with her more regularly. So that was really the way to do it. And for her to go there and spend a full day there on Saturdays and to get there on time, I had to drive her. So we would leave around 6 a.m. from Philadelphia on Saturday and she would spend the whole day there and we would get home, I don't know, about 7, 8, 9, 10, depending on what was going on. But I have to say, it was a very kind of Tom Sawyer experience because many people said to me, oh, you poor thing, you have to go up to New York every Saturday. And I would say, yes, it's certainly terrible. But in reality, <laughs> I would go to museums or I would walk around Manhattan for hours and hours. And if the weather was poor, I would often just go to the library and work. And I would go to the wonderful Fine Arts Library in Lincoln Center it was, for me, it was not a terrible experience. I belonged to the Parents Association, and I did find some of the parents extremely intimidating, but I also made some really good friends there, so I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was a little more stressful for my daughter, <laughs> a lot more stressful and exhausting. You know, we would get into the car, and I would be like, tell me everything, and she would immediately fall asleep. <laughs> Juilliard is a very tense, competitive place. And I think that it's not helped by the physical environment of the building, you know, the sort of brutalist modern construction, literally that's what it is, and the kind of hard walls that reverberate in the way they do, and the other parents can be super intense. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So it's hard. Classical music is hard. In general, Juilliard was amazing to my daughter. It was a great place in many, many ways, but it was also a very hard place. It's kind of a microcosm of the music world. I went back to Juilliard last year, I think it was, to just have a rehearsal there. And I, every time I go into the building, even now, I still get a kind of tense. And I took a picture of the exterior because the building has gone through some renovations. Yeah. And I took a picture and I sent it to a friend of mine and he wrote back and he said, oh, it's a slice of brutalist pie. And I <laughs> said, exactly, <laughs> in so many, many ways. <laughs> it's funny because for me, maybe it's partly my personality. I actually love it. And when I see it, I almost want to cry with joy. And when I go in there, well, I don't know. I haven't been in there this year, obviously, because of the pandemic. And it's sad because my daughter is just finishing a fellowship that's sponsored by Juilliard and Carnegie Hall, which would have included many concerts there. And I missed the ones in the fall because, bizarrely, I had gone to France for an artist residency. And I ended up breaking my hip in a, in a freak accident. And then I couldn't travel, so I missed some of the ones there. And then the pandemic has canceled all the rest. So she would have had concerts there and also at Carnegie. The guys at the front desk recognize me and they let me in even though I don't have a pass. And I love it. But I think it's it's a different experience for me as a parent. I've had many very affirming experiences there. But it's it's a mixed bag and I think it kind of reflects the music world. And right now, I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows. I'm amazed that they let you in because those security <laughs> guards have been extremely mean to me and my family in the past and many, many people. So you have some magic fairy dust. I, I have like a halo. They don't always, not all the guards, but some of them do. And I know I've heard 
former students say the same thing. Like, I mean, they like, they're me. really terrible. They're really, yeah. really <laughs> terrible. No, honestly, I went there with a former student from another university where I was teaching, and they treated us so poorly that she was utterly shocked and we actually went to the alumni office and like made an official report because she was the school that she went to where I taught I mean they treat their alumni with kid gloves yes and that's very smart Um, no I've heard that same what you're saying I totally validate that so many people have told me so I know what you're saying yeah yeah You're the founding and chief editor of Cleaver, an online literary magazine and book review. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started, why you started your own literary magazine, and what you've learned from growing Cleaver? Cleaver magazine is something that my oldest daughter and I had talked about since she was a young teenager in a sort of idle fantasy way. And we almost did it at one point. She and I talked about creating a magazine, and the name Cleaver was her name uh, that she came up with. It's an auto-antonym, also called a Janus word, where it means itself and its opposite. So to cleave is to stick tight, but it's also to thwack apart with great force. What stopped us from doing this in the you know early to mid-2000s is that a print magazine is very, very hard to distribute. And I have a number of friends and former students who had founded and run print magazines. And I spoke to all of them and they all told me, don't do it, distributing the magazine will take over your life, it's a nightmare. So I just sort of put that idea on hold, but it was always an idea. But then in 2012 over winter break, my daughter was home and we were just chatting and she said, you know, we could start that magazine because by that time, We both had skills with web design, and there are some platforms like Submittable, which is a submissions manager, and other things that would make it possible to create an online magazine that would be freed from the constraints of having to distribute print. When she was younger, at age 16, she was an editor, and she's still on the masthead of American Poetry Review, so she had experience in a fairly large or respected literary magazine and I've occasionally been involved in editing magazines myself so the other thing we had was a really good network of writers that we would be able to tap so we just set it up we spent two weeks of sort of working not completely full-time but working pretty hard on coming up with an architecture for how the magazine would be because there are many different models you can use for an online magazine and we decided that we would use a basic idea of a print magazine like the New Yorker or something as our model and that we would have a front page that would come out quarterly and quarterly is just something we pull out of a hat. Sometimes I think, why am I on this treadmill? But that's because it was just the first idea that came up and that the front page would look like the table of contents of a print magazine that we would have several different genres. We decided we would do a preview edition that would be all flash, very short pieces in any genre. And then I just wrote to most of the writers that I could think of who were my friends and said, hey, do you have something short for my magazine? Wisely, most of them said, Karen, I have nothing right now (laughs) because they didn't know what I would come up with. And I don't blame them. But a few of them were nice enough to give me some small pieces. So we, in February 2013, published our first issue, All Flash. And at that point, I had put up a submittable portal and um, advertised it a little on social media. And a few people had submitted, and I think there were one or two pieces that came from those submissions. So they were not really solicited, but they were actually friends of mine who sent it in. 
a month later, and I can't believe I did that to myself, we had our first full issue, which was also mostly solicited, but larger, longer pieces. We've been a quarterly, March, June, September, December, since 2013. You know, I would say maybe the first three or four issues tended to be mostly solicited material. So we always had a really good magazine because the solicited material was, were from artists that, and writers that I knew were good. And I think that helps really solidify our reputation. I knew that we were doing well when a friend of mine who will remain unnamed, who is a kind of slightly arrogant writer, I ran into him at some social event and he said to me, oh, Karen, I didn't know you were involved with Cleaver. And I thought, it's both so insulting and so flattering simultaneously. I love it because he thinks <laughs> that I'm lucky to be involved with this entity that he sees as something out there in the literary world. It's a lot of work, but... The reason we've been so successful is that as the chief editor, I've been very flexible with what we do, but I've also been in my Suzuki mom way, really diligent about maintaining the practice. So we have consistently, we've had an issue every quarter since March, 2013. And um, we've done a lot of other stuff. We started doing book reviews. For a while we were doing radio plays, which turned out to be very difficult to reduce in terms of the amount of time and money. So we stopped doing that for the time being, but we've added many features. We have an advice column called Ask June, a little joke on June Cleaver. That's written by a friend of mine who's a writer. She's also a lawyer with a Harvard law degree. And so she's a very like astute person and she answers people's queries. We do craft essays and we just started a online learning division. We've been thinking about it for a long time, but I did it in response to the quarantine because people are looking for ways to expand their worlds. And also some of our teachers are looking for ways to like find extra income. And also we're afraid we'll lose most of our grant support. We've been very lucky, although it's not just luck. The grant applications are quite arduous, but I've received wonderful, wonderful funding from the city of Philadelphia and administered through an entity called the Philadelphia Cultural Fund. And they have been struck from the budget by the city next year. So we need to um, fund ourselves and I think we can do that. It's a lot of work, but we're just pretty flexible. And because I do all of the web master work, we're very responsive and fast. When there's an issue to come out, it's, it gets out there. And when there's a correction to be made, we make it really fast. And when there's a book review to file, it gets up there. It's not like I have to flag someone down and pay them or beg them to do it. We have a lot of control over what we put out there, and that's been pretty successful. Like you mentioned, since quarantine, a lot has changed in terms of people's desire, I guess, for expanding their world, as you said, and some online learning. And I've been teaching some writing classes on my own, and I'll be teaching for you. What do you find interesting about musicians who write, and what do you think makes classical musicians specifically, I suppose, strong writers potentially, and why might they have that capacity? In the early years of Cleaver, we had an idea of doing some themed issues. Mm -hmm. And because music is my great interest, that was obviously going to be one of the themes. And I will say, like, I told you the first maybe three or four issues were mostly solicited. Now, almost nothing in Cleaver is solicited because we get thousands of submissions a year. And, you know, we have enough work coming in over the transom that we don't need to solicit that's a good question, musicians who write. I actually think that a lot of musicians don't write very well. And I think it's because their training is just so consuming that they're not able to develop other parts of themselves. I think it's kind of rare. My daughter, who's a musician, is actually a really good writer. And 
she was having articles published when she was like, I don't know, 13 or 14 in Strings Magazine because she was rare. And then when they started a magazine for a while, I don't know if it still exists, called Teen Strings, she wrote for them a lot because it's hard to find a kid that can actually write who's also a musician because the professionalization happens so young and there's almost no time for anything else. That said, I do know some musicians who write really beautifully, and I think partly because they just have a natural ability and they read a lot. There are some, but I think it's something that could be developed a lot because I think musicians have a fabulous ear, so of course they have that capacity. It's just, a, you know, writing takes development, as you know. I think you are naturally just extremely good at it, but you didn't just get there without practicing it, right? Yeah, and it was just interesting, especially to hear you talk a little bit about the differences of the approach, like the approach to the disciplines. And as you were talking earlier, I was sort of musing to myself if that was partly why I turned to writing. I'm so risk averse and not particularly rebellious, sort of like you said, you know, early on, maybe those are more the kids who kind of can excel within the narrow, really rigorous training of a classical musician, but maybe wanting to have a little bit of my own agency is part of why writing seemed attractive. There's a really wonderful quote, and I'm probably going to remember it wrong, by Susan Sontag, great nonfiction and fiction writer. She says that literature is like a party where you come to it and you sort of participate. Like no one writes alone in a silo or a vacuum, which is similar to music. Like you don't just sit in your ivory tower and and play the violin, you're playing with other people, unless you're Glenn Gould, that's separate. But everyone comes to writing because they have experienced ecstasy as a reader. And I think that what makes you a writer is being a reader. You know, I teach at a very elite university that's become more elite over the years. And one thing I've noticed in the change of students is that I get students now who have had very little opportunity growing up reading for pleasure the little reading they've done for pleasure is like the Harry Potter books. They haven't been able to dip into literature the way I was able to do in my sort of, you know, unpoliced childhood, just reading all over the place. You know, I was pulling James Baldwin off my parents' bookshelf when they weren't looking and reading that when I was a kid. So, you know, they they haven't had that opportunity to read literary fiction. So when I give it to them as part of our writing class, I have them reading the whole time too. They often say, I've never read work like this before. And I think that that's something that happens to musicians as well. There's just not a lot of time when you're practicing six hours a day to also stay up reading with a flashlight under the covers because you're exhausted, you know, and you're also going to school. And so a lot of my Penn students have read a lot, but they've only read what's been given to them in school on the curriculum. So they enjoyed it and they consider themselves lovers of literature, but they write like they're living in the 19th century because that's all they've been able to read where they're taking a you know required class and they're reading a lot of Dickens so that's how they're writing so we have to break them out of that and I give them more contemporary and by contemporary I actually mean late 20th century as well as you know 21st century work to read just so that they have some kind of like experience with what people are are writing now and it's just mind-blowing to them sometimes you know I mean I also get students who are pre-professionalized in this is another thing that's happened in writing actually Now that University of Pennsylvania has a full-time recruiter who's a former student of mine for creative writing, she's bringing in students who have excelled in, like, they've won Young Arts and they, you know, have all these scholastic golden keys and stuff. So they come to Penn and they've already published in, like, major reviews and stuff. Those students are actually very versed in what's in the contemporary world. But I also have, right alongside them, students who have equal amounts of talent and drive, but they just haven't seen contemporary fiction. So it's really wonderful to show that to them. And I think that one of the reasons a lot of classical musicians just aren't comfortable writing is that they haven't had 
the experience of just being allowed to lie around and read a book. Can you talk a little bit about why creative writing is important and what we can gain from cultivating a creative writing practice? Yes, that's a great question. I think that a lot of professionalized writing is unclear and filled with jargon. And I think that what I give my creative writing students, 90% of whom are not going to become professional creative writers, is an insight into a way of writing that is clear and that communicates well. Because even though I might be teaching a course in the art of fiction and we're working on short fiction and we're looking at different ways of framing point of view or narrative distance, or other things that would be just considered specifically fiction or nonfiction writing techniques. The point of what I'm doing isn't really to have them write great short stories that will be published in The New Yorker. The point is that they're going to become a lot clearer in all of their written communication because they're just going to be thinking about how to express something clearly. And a lot of academic writing is deliberately obfuscated. And a lot of business writing is deliberately obfuscational. And just to be able to write in a way that's clear and readable, it's a tremendous asset and it frees people up. I have had so many students because I started teaching when I was really, really young. So I have a long, I have students who are just, I feel like they're older than me now. I'm not sure how that happened. But they get back to me after 10 or 15 years and they, they say, that course in fiction that I felt I was writing really badly is the course that helped me in business because now I can communicate to the people, you know, as an entrepreneur. Some people have written to me and said, I actually became a journalist because you made me see that I can do this. And I've had so many letters like this from people who did not go into fiction writing or creative nonfiction. Those are the two things I teach. I don't teach journalism. I don't really know about journalism, although I do it. I do think that just giving them the sort of toolbox to use later in life has been really liberating. And I really do feel that when I'm looking at this classroom of 19 and 20 year olds that I'm speaking to their 40 year old selves later on. I don't expect in 16 weeks that they'll master the art of writing a short story. But I do think that I've given them things to think about. And sometimes they're the most obvious things. Like for example, I keep saying to them, it's okay to use contractions when you write. I mean, that's such a basic, clear and obvious thing that I would say like 70% of my students haven't thought that they can use a contraction in any kind of writing that isn't maybe a text message. You know, teaching them very small things like the verb drives the sentence. Don't use a lot of adverbs. It weakens what you're trying to say. You know, I say this over and over again in fiction, and it's true in fiction, but it's also true in any kind of writing. I'm actually talking to their future selves, and I don't even mind. I say to them over and over again, we're working on a process. If you come up with a story that's publishable, that's awesome, but it's not really the point of this class. I'm just trying to get you to sharpen your skills and sort of build that toolbox. I was once talking about this on the first day of class, and a freshman raised her hand and asked if she could buy the toolbox in the bookstore. I kind of wish that we had something like that. But, you know, it's just something that's in your head that you just build on for the rest of your life. If I had to think about my own college career, which was kind of disparate and a little this and a little of that, the two courses that influenced me that I think about all the time, one was a very difficult course that was way out of my wheelhouse in color theory, and I still use that idea and the and the concepts I got from that in every part of my life all the time. Like I walked into a class, so I teach something called narrative collage, which is like modular writing, and I held up two pieces of paper, which are like giant, the idea of a giant paint swatch, and I hold them up 
sequentially, and I said, well, what color is this? And they say white. But when I hold them up together, you can see that they were like, oh, one is blue and one is gray. But then I hold them up against white, and then they change again. So that's like both an object lesson in everything in life, but also it teaches a lot about the juxtaposition of modular units in, in modular writing. And the other class I took was a Psychology One course that happened to be taught by a young professor named Martin Seligman. I mean, at the time, it was called Learn Helplessness, was what he taught. He founded the whole school of positive psychology, but he was teaching Psych One, and I just happened to sign up for this class that had like 200 people in it, and it really changed my life. I almost changed my major, and I kind of wish I had, but I did it. But I think about the concepts I learned in that course almost every day. So that's what I get from my students who say things like, I took that as an elective, I'm a terrible writer, or I was at the time, but it really changed my life. And I think that's how creative writing can really influence people because it teaches them writing in a way that is actually free from the constraints of professionalism. The reason I asked about creative writing is I feel like, and I'm putting air quotes as you did around creative writing, because of the following. I think the arts in American culture seems to be something that's considered valuable, but isn't necessarily valued, meaning people like the idea of the arts and culture, but they don't want to pay for it. And with the COVID pandemic, the performing arts in particular have taken a really hard hit. You've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to kind of drive the point home. Like creative writing, storytelling skills, these are not indulgences, but they are actually really vitally important to being, frankly, even if you want to think of it very capitalistically, like it's, you've already said, you have people that you've taught who came back and said, this really helped me in my business. So can you talk a little bit about why writing and storytelling skills, especially in this, again, big quotes, in the creative sandbox can help performing artists perhaps pivot towards a new career. I have a lot of thoughts about that. First off, I'm going to circle back to the idea of Juilliard because I remember that when my daughter started her freshman year there, they had a special like meeting for parents. The dean at the time, Argusalini. Yes. Yeah. He made a speech that was really interesting and I thought it was just like right on target. And I'm paraphrasing him, and I might even be putting some words in his mouth that I had already thought of, but it's that the old model for classical music, which really only existed for a small part of the 20th century, was that, you know, you work super, super hard, and you get hired by an orchestra, and your life is made. That doesn't really exist anymore, and that what we are trying to encourage in this multidisciplinary conservatory is the idea that you become sort of an arts entrepreneur and that you are very flexible in your thinking and that you consider multiple income streams and that you really work hard at diversifying yourself. And I think that very few people in that audience were buying what he was saying, but I found it thrilling because, you know, I grew up in an arts entrepreneurial household and every one of my children became an arts entrepreneur. And it's definitely something that is like, I, I absolutely agree with. And I also think that it's it's extremely important. And I, and I see that the old model was dying. The pandemic has really pushed classical music into a terrible corner. And I don't really check back with me. I might have a solution in a few weeks, but I haven't come up with it yet. And I see people all around me actively working on it. But, you know, it's already been happening. Like monetizing music is really hard. But, you know, it started very early where... Um, Napster. Napster, yes. Napster kind of just, you know, it just did it in. Like, you know, who is making CDs now? Well, some people still are. It's just like that's not how you monetize things anymore. And it's really hard. The most expensive classical music concert is like 
a drop in the bucket compared to a Hamilton ticket. Sure. I mean, Hamilton's great, and I paid $250 to see it in Philadelphia sitting, like, in the very, very back. But that's more than I've ever paid for a classical music concert. You know, I had terrible sticker shock, and I've gone to some pretty expensive classical music concerts. So, you know, it's very hard to monetize, and now we can't have live performances. So it's it's really hard. I was actually explaining this yesterday in an interview with a classical music arts reporter who was writing about the art scene in Philadelphia, because I found I've had to explain this to people in performing arts in the fine arts area of writing, which would be called literary fiction, literary nonfiction, po- any poet. There are very, very few people who make their living from the art that they produce. You can probably count the number of poets on half of your hand but in the U.S. today who are making their living from poetry and very, very few people writing prose are making their living from doing that. There are some blockbuster bestsellers. Those aren't the best work usually. So for the rest of us, we all have a day job. And so for some people, it's a B job. Like my oldest daughter has a B job. She works as a union, non-professional library employee at the University of Pennsylvania. And what does she do for her vocation? She runs a theater company, Aerial Acrobatic Theater Company. Okay. So like, we have that, like you work in a job that's not related to your art, which might be writing poetry. And it could be anything from working in a restaurant to teaching in a university or working for a press or something like that. So we have this system in which even the very best paying magazines don't pay enough to live on. And if you're lucky and you write a poem and you get $500 for it, that's like amazing, but it's certainly not worth the effort you put into being a poet. And most publications, even the ones that are very respect it, pay a token, if anything. So we have this strange situation, like the magazine I run, in which we can't pay our writers, and our writers often pay us. Like, they can tip us, and they do. And they don't mind that because they understand that we're putting many thousands of hours of unpaid labor as editors and publishers, and we're paying a lot of money. My submittable bill is very, very high. Submittable is the submissions manager that kind of keeps the submissions in order so that we can read them. We pay a ton to MailChimp to send our issues around. We pay thousands a year for web hosting because our site is very large and everything we publish remains on the site and people view them all the time. It's a huge amount of effort and cost for us and the writers see us as stewards of their work and we produce it and we, we honor it and we keep it up there beautifully. So it's this strange system where they're not getting paid. Sometimes they're even tipping us or paying us and we're doing all this work and we're not getting paid and why are we all doing this because we revere the art and we all have our b job and that's not a great system but it's the system that we're doing and people do it because they love the art and i don't know i mean it's not that i'm saying this is an answer i'm just explaining how it works because performing artists i sit on these peer review panels where it's across all the disciplines So a dancer on the panel cannot believe that we don't pay. They just cannot believe this model. I've had to explain it over and over, and I'm like, that's right, we don't pay the people. So the times I've paid people at Cleaver, I've paid visual artists occasionally who design like logo stuff for us. And when we were doing radio plays, we, because it's a different tradition, we paid the actors and we paid the director, and we couldn't afford that. We couldn't afford to sustain that because it doesn't fit in the model of our very um, sort of bare bones budget, we couldn't do it. So we had to stop that. So it's really hard. I mean, 
as someone who grew up in the business of performing arts, I would never ask a performer to do anything without paying them. And I don't mean like an honorarium. I mean, they should be paid. But I routinely work for free as a writer and ask other writers to work for free. And it's it sucks. But we do that because that's how our industry works. And we all have the B jobs. So when I when my students ask me, should I get an MFA? I say, yeah, I mean, it's great. You probably shouldn't go into debt for it unless your family can afford it. If you can get into a funded program, yeah. If your employer pays for it, yeah. It's great because you'll meet all kinds of wonderful contacts and they'll help your career. But you're talking about, can I get a job in publishing? You probably can. You probably won't make a lot of money, but it'll be, it might be really great and rewarding, but will someone pay me to sit there and write a novel? Probably not. You might be able to get a fellowship or something like that and go for it, but you should probably think about a B job and it's fine. It's totally honored to do that. Like you could be a nanny and be writing poems and, and some of the most wonderful, successful poets I know have complete B jobs. Some of them are adjuncting at five colleges. It's really tough. People do it for love. You're right that the culture of every artistic discipline varies a little bit, but I would still say that generally I find that even musicians, the reason I asked that question is partly that those of us in the performing arts fields where, you know, we can't gather in large groups right now, we can't have live performances, there is a real kind of scramble right now in terms of us finally confronting how this funny dichotomy of the arts are considered really valuable (laughs) but nobody wants to pay for it and so musicians too often we undersell ourselves we don't know how to price what we are offering our services it's a real struggle and also I'm sure that your children have had the same thing and as of you like all of us who are in arts entrepreneurship I personally struggle a lot with figuring out like well what am I worth like what's my time worth and so um, and I don't know that those kinds of considerations are as intense in some other fields. I think that it's worse in the performing arts right now for so many reasons. For one thing, you're performers and being siloed in your apartment and playing in front of a video camera is not, you, you need to be next to each other and playing. Mm-hmm. And a live performance, I mean, we can always, I can turn on Spotify and I do it all day long and listen to a performance that was recorded 20 years ago. That's not sustainable. Like I've had recently had these sad thoughts like, well, maybe all classical music will be sort of cocooned into a time capsule and that was it. I don't want to believe that's true. My daughter told me that right now among her peers, and I'm sure you're seeing this, it's sort of half and half. Half of them are frantically uploading videos of themselves playing solo box suites in their parents' houses, in their childhood bedrooms with like happy expressions. And the other half are just sort of walking around like zombies thinking, should I go to law school? Yep. You know, it's a sticky wicket that we're in. Because all this free content that's being generated is free. So is it setting a precedent now that we're going to have a hard time coming back from? Yeah, Um, I agree, I think. Yeah, for the very reason that the segment of our chat started, which is like, the, the things that we do are considered valuable, not to mention that, like, as you said, all of the resources, time and financial that go into growing a musician or a dancer or a writer or what have you. So there's a tremendous amount of inherent value, but we are in a culture and a system that doesn't want to pay for it. And are we aggravating that um, yes, disparity? Yes, I, I think putting free content out is a mistake. 
although I do publish a magazine without a paywall, but I don't think people would access it if it had a paywall. So Well, but that's, again, it's like, it's this thing where we have to find our point. And I'm, this is not me like condemning people for doing that. It's like, we're all doing what we can. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's just, I want to put that out there as something so, that's important. So I also, I see this as the flip side of the tragedy of the commons. You know, like you have a commons and it just falls apart because no one's going to take personal responsibility exactly. for picking up the trash. The tragedy of the commons, we all agree that fresh air and green space is important, but we're not ready to pay for it. You know, we're not w willing to, to make changes in our daily habits. And we all agree that classical music and art are great but no one wants to pay for it. And yes, it is like, I think it's the central, central tragedy of humanity. And I try to be really optimistic and I'm always coming up with ideas. You know, like I just opened up this online learning division because I think it'll be great. What other ways has the pandemic changed what you're thinking about reading and writing right now, especially as it pertains to this platform that you've developed? Has that changed what your message is? Or can you talk a little bit about that, just sort of artistically and as an editor, but also as a writer yourself, just, you know, how is this affecting you? In some ways, the model that we built for Claver made us kind of pandemic proof. Because we don't have in-person meetings, it would be impractical because we all have to be looking at individual computers anyway. So, you know, we already do most of our work, even if I could be talking to my friend who is 10 blocks away, but we do it all at home on our computers because it's a digital product. So it doesn't make any sense to meet in person except for social reasons. We haven't had any sort of change in our platform. I mean, small ways, like we have a visual narrative artist who does great work and she came up with a pandemic cartoon. It's a comic rather that's on our front page for the issue that came out in March and she did it really quickly. So obviously a little content change. And we had another pandemic themed story that we'd already accepted before the pandemic started. We might change some editorial choices. I mean, it hasn't changed us in that way, except that I am always on sort of hyper alert for like, how can we support people or change things? So the online division, which is something I knew that we could put up, but I've always like, well, I'll do that next month. I'll do that next month. Because why? Because I'm busy. I'm already teaching online for the University of Pennsylvania. I'm already doing other projects. I don't need to start a new project. But I did realize, oh, well, we could do this now and it could it could help people. And I think it's working out pretty well. One thing that the pandemic will do for artists of every kind, especially performers, is force them to recognize things. I can't even talk about the huge collateral damage of closing all these institutions. And as we know, performing arts series are planned like one or two years in advance. I mean, I know that because I grew up, I worked for my mom. I used to like do booking for her when I was younger. And yeah, the seasons are being shut down. Agencies are going out of business. So that's terrible. But that aside, I mean, it's forcing people to become and of course, we all know many orchestras have laid off their union players, citing force majeure, act of God type of thing. You know, until March, I used to think, well, if my daughter only wanted to be in an orchestra, which she doesn't, then she would have job security and she wouldn't have to worry about like hustling. And now I realize like oh, that was pretty false because we know that a lot of American orchestras are going to fold. So it's forcing people to really come to grips with this demon and. I hope classical music survives. I mean, it will in some kind of time capsule, but because we'll always have the great recordings that were made. It's just this huge upheaval that's going to force us to grapple with these things that were already sort of coming and we were keeping it at bay.
You said that you learned through your experiences as an artist, a writer, and a parent that you can, quote, change life very quickly. You're like really scrappy and you're smart and you make things happen. One of the things I think a lot about as it pertains to this podcast is this concept of what I like to call creative courage. How do you cultivate your creative courage and how do you find motivation to keep creating, especially in periods of maybe uncertainty and even rejection? I mean, rejection is such a big part of a writer's life. My biggest hurdle right now is that I've taken on so many projects that I don't have a lot of time to do creative writing. Mm -hmm. I think I grew up liking roles too. I went to Catholic school for 13 years and I wasn't always the best fit for that, especially with parents who were artists. But um, having kids go through issues forced me to like learn how to pivot. For me, like the best experience, which was also a really hard experience, when my second daughter was 15, she was going to a high school for creative arts in Philadelphia. She was a violist, and she was their best violist uh, by kind of a very large margin. And a terrible thing happened. Her beloved teacher was killed in an auto accident. It was horrible. And then his widow, who was also a violist, someone that we really loved a lot, lent her his instrument, but it was too big for her. And she ended up developing really bad tendinitis. Mm -hmm. And she had to stop playing for a while. And she only maintained the very high-level performances, like playing in Carnegie Hall from the top. The school was really awful to her. They kept pressuring her to keep playing because they needed her in the orchestra. And also to, to sort of running the sectionals for the other kids and stuff. And they were... They were trying to get her to stop the outside engagements and only do school stuff, which to me was sort of backwards <laughs> because the school mm-hmm. stuff wasn't very good. Like it was just a very terrible fit. So I pulled her out of school. She was 16 at the time, by the time this happened. And suddenly, because I had experience with homeschooling my older daughter and she'd been homeschooled when she was younger for a little while and I knew it would be fine. But because this was a Philadelphia public school, they sort of isolated her for an exit interview and they were pressuring her to stay. I was kept in a different room. They said to her, you need to face the music or using a terrible cliche, to face your demons. You need to stay even, you know, you need to finish what you started. All the cliches that I hear parents pressuring their children and people pressuring themselves, you need to complete what you started, all that stuff. And um, when she got in the car and she reported to me what they said, I was like, no, You need to be empowered to change your life. And if you're in a situation that isn't working out, you need to be able to pivot and change it unless you have no power. Like if you were in jail, in prison, I guess you wouldn't have power to change it. But you're not in prison. And I'm saying to you, you can stop this. And also public education, she was 16 at the time and she didn't legally have to go to school anymore. She actually ended up changing and she went to a different school. And that school that she went to had an art um, requirement and she was required to take either bookbinding or glass blowing, both of which would fit into her schedule. And she thought both of those seemed repellent. And um, I just said, well, you choose. And she chose glass blowing, but she was very afraid of it because she was still a musician and she had all these gigs and she didn't want to hurt herself. She started doing glass blowing and she saw that it was very similar to chamber music because you have to do it with other people in a sort of very sort of choreographed way. And it's not really about the individual because it's it's like there is the person who's the leader, who's the creator, but the other people have to anticipate. And it was actually, there were the parallels between that and all the chamber music she played were very strong and she fell in love with it. And within two years, she was in a sort of conservatory art program and she ended up graduating with a BFA in 
glass, and now she just finished her MFA in glass. And she's an amazing glass artist. And her life was changed by a series of coincidences, but part of it was just having the courage, and partly it's my courage, to leave that terrible situation. Because she said to me, they were pressuring me so much that I almost gave in. And so I think that like sometimes the horrible, horrible thing that happens to you, she left that whole world and changed careers into a totally different world. And that never would have happened had it not been for this bizarre pivot and resiliency. And now she's facing the similar thing because, you know, the studio where she was doing her MFA had to shut down in March. Um, she didn't get to do her exhibits. It had to be virtual. She defended her thesis virtually, which was fine. She has her degree, but she has no studio, and she's going to have to work that out. But I know she will be able to because the world keeps changing, but you can you can change with it. But the idea is that, and that to me is all very instructional to see this happen to her because, you know, I pivoted many times. So I am also, I think when the pandemic started, I've been working on a novel for a long time that has a very strong music theme, including the Mozart family. And I felt for a while that anything I could do was just trivial. Like, how can I even continue to work on this? And now I'm starting to see, because it's taken me a while, where I can pivot and change the novel in which it does have meaning. Because I I think a lot of writers have felt this. A lot, I mean, in the writing community, and I'm pretty entrenched in that, just on social media too, a lot of people saying, you know, my project doesn't seem to have any meaning anymore. Who, who cares about this, you know, unless we're talking about like what people are really going through. And people who write in shorter forms, like poetry or flash, they can pivot easily. But people that write in long forms, it's tough. Having the ability to just really think it through and pivot is, is, a, is a good thing. And I just keep taking lessons from the people that I see around me. And for me, that, that was a huge lesson. And I've said this to many people in the interim, like having the courage to be willing to change your life and to stand up to people who tell you not to and who tell you to complete what you started. No, you can actually change tracks because it's your life and you have the, the power to do that. I think that you're a great example. Like, Not that you're no longer a musician because you are a musician still, but you were able to like take on this whole new dimension and do it in such a way that was so brave and so like resourceful. And I have to say like, you know, I hadn't talked to you for a while since we published your piece, and then you called me up and you were like, well, I'm going to go to an MFA program, and then you'd already, I think, been admitted to some really prestigious programs. Yeah, it was a... You did secretly. I did I was it very like, secretly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, that's not small change that you were accepted to these places. And then having the bravery to go to a program that was different, but was really right for you, really impressed me too. And I, I just think like... Yeah, I think that that is the model to follow. Like, just being brave enough to take on, like, the courage to take charge of your own life is really tough. But I think the people that will survive are the people who can do that. And the answer isn't always clear. One of my favorite poems is a poem by Kenneth Cook, who is one of the New York school poets. I don't have it in front of me, but it's very easy to find. It's called One Train. And the sort of recurring motif is one train may hide another, which is a sign that he saw at a railway crossing in Kenya. And the idea is when you're at a railway crossing, there could be one train and you see it, but what you don't see is the train behind it. So sometimes we're so blinded by the goal in front of us that's been our goal for so long that when that goal leaves, in the poem, the woman that you loved, but you didn't, but you were never able to, from his point of view, to, to marry or to see 
when she moves away, you see her sister, and there she is, you know? And so in my own life and in other people's lives, there are so many things that have happened that have seemed like tragedies at first, but when the fog clears, you can see, oh, the thing that I really wanted that I didn't even know about or wouldn't have known about, my daughter would have never even considered glass blowing. I mean, that's so random. And yet it's become her life. It's the thing that she loves. And it only came about through this terrible, terrible tragedy. Also like developing pain issues that really meant otherwise she probably would have gone to a classical music conservatory. She was in that trajectory. And because of developing this terrible tendonitis issues and stuff, she had to leave that. For a while, she didn't know what will I be when I grow up now that I'm not going to be a musician. And then this new train, the train that was hidden. It's my hope that this podcast would be the kind of resource I wished had existed when I was younger and growing up. What advice would you give to your younger self to help her on her journey? That's a great question. I kind of wish I had known all this stuff when I was growing up. I think I would tell her to be flexible and to know that a small amount of work every day yields more than the sum of the work because that's something I didn't know. And the other thing I would tell her is that one train may hide another. So that's the same thing, you know. But it's also nice to discover that as you go along. So I often tell younger, like my students or whatever, when they are talking about their five-year plan because Penn is so Wharton influenced that even the creative writing concentrators and the English majors are very anxious about that. And I'm like, no, just like be open because you have no idea the things that are going to happen to you. And it's okay to have a five-year daydream, but it's more important just to be like open and flexible to what's going to be in your future. Thank you to today's guest, Karen Ryle. Visit my blog, isitrecessyet.com to learn more ways to cultivate your creative courage and to subscribe to my mailing list. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet? on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and share it with a friend or write a review and rate this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet? community and to find like-minded listeners. Thanks so much for listening. Be well and see you next time.